Welcome to the backdrop, Untold Stories in Golf. I'm Matt Considine, co-founder of New Club Golf Society, and today I'm not your host. Your host is none other than my buddy, New Club member, Jim Sitar. We'll be walking us through a great conversation today with our book club selection. Uh, Dottie Pepper is joining us live with our members on the backdrop. Uh, this is a great conversation. Jim does a wonderful job with an introduction for someone who needs no introduction. Dottie Pepper, legend of the game, one of our favorite broadcasters, uh, Hall of Famer, just just really, really great conversation. And we want to thank her for joining us. Uh, there's a few things that I wanted to uh just share with everybody that we got coming up. We just finished our Chicago club championship. Uh, that was right after I recorded this. So we'll have uh, much more from our, our competitors and our champions in the Chicago market. Do want to thank journeyman distillery journeyman distillery has been an official partner of new club this season. Uh, we were with them at the summer medal. Uh, they hosted our season ending party last night. My goodness. These guys are awesome And the place is great. So if you are in the Chicago area, or you're passing through uh, Southwest Michigan, North West uh, Indiana, you got to stop in Three Oaks, Michigan. They have a, a phenomenal distillery in the Featherbone factory. Uh, it's filled with history. It's filled with uh, spirits and, and man, their spirits are good. So check out journeymandistillery.com. Um, take a look at what they have to offer. 1%, 1% of all sales from their Silver Cross whiskey, uh, which is is a nod to the original founders of the game. Uh, 1% goes to golf charities. So you're also supporting the game by visiting Journeyman Distillery, and we'll be back. We'll definitely be back. That's one of my the highlights of the season we, we have every single year. Coming up, Chicago, October 9th, Western Open, city versus suburb matches are going down. I thought about it a little bit this morning, and you know, the, the suburb team on paper, they're stacked. They look a lot like the U.S. Ryder Cup team. They just uh, a lot of world ranking points in the golf society. And I think the city's kind of a definitive underdog in, in many ways. You guys have, you know, the the driving ranges nearby. You have all your country clubs in close proximity. Us city guys, you know, we, we got to struggle. I, I hit balls in the park. Don't tell the, the local authorities. But, you know, I think those matches are going to be great city underdogs. Let's go get them. Um, few spots left for that one. Moving on to next big fixture is the Founders Cup down in Pinehurst, North Carolina. We'll be at Southern Pines. We'll be at Tobacco Road for a full day event. Then we're going to head back to Mid Pines for our single matches and round it out at Pine Needles. These are phenomenal golf courses. Some of the best golf courses, like honestly, I've ever played. And uh, I just saw Pine Needles was uh, put on the must-see list for the fried egg of public accessible golf course architecture. You gotta make this trip if you can. And we have two spots left, two single occupancy spots left. So I just wanted to, to announce that for our members. If you can make that trip, please do. It is going to be all world. Atlanta. First week in November, your club championship is going down. So the final 16 will be playing match play. I can't officially say the course yet, but I'll just give you a hint. It is a very classic golf course built in 1926. Maybe the most classic in all of Georgia. Definitely in the top five on most lists. This will be a great day of competition, fun camaraderie for our first ever contested club championship in Atlanta, Georgia, or whereabouts. And uh, Alexa Sterling pod coming up will be uh, donning the champion belt, which I'm pretty excited to share with our, our members in Georgia. We, we, we have a full uh, fall of golf, a lot to look forward to rounding things out in the winter meeting at Bandon Dunes. For those that are attending that, that's a great way to close out our season before we turn the calendar on 2021 and head into 2022. Speaking of, if you're a member of new club, and you're thinking of people that would be a great fit for what we do, the camaraderie, the match play, the fun that we have with this community of golfers, please make a referral. We always appreciate referrals. Getting people into the golf society is the only way that we can sustain and keep doing this thing. So please send those along. If you're not a member of New Club, consider joining us. Reach out. Ask some questions. We have wonderful people making things happen in, uh, for our honor members in Chicago and Atlanta and ambassadors all around the country. We have hundreds of ambassadors now all around the country. So we're going to get them more involved in our upcoming season. And there's so much to look forward to as we, uh, as we head into this fall season. So without further ado, on to the show with Dottie Pepper.
Dotty. I'm Matt Considine, the founder of New Club Golf Society. I just wanted to say welcome to the bag drop. Uh, welcome to our golf society. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. This is a, a serious treat for, for so many of us to have a Hall of Famer, a major champ, and, and many of our favorite broadcaster. I mean, we'll, oh, well, thank you. that'll probably come out through this, but it, it's great to have you with us. Uh, our host tonight is everybody's favorite, James Sitar. Uh, Jim will be will be walking us through the first portion of this. This will be a podcast we'll share with uh, so many more friends in the next couple of weeks. But with that, I will hand this over to Jim to dive in and get, and get the conversation started. Great, thanks, Matt, and and thanks for being the producer in my ear tonight. Um, super exciting to have Dottie Pepper with us. Um, Dottie needs no introduction, but uh, I'll give a brief one anyway, just to stay true to form. Uh, Dottie's uh, a legend of the LPGA Tour. Uh, she won 17 tournaments, including two majors. Uh, she's also played in six Solheim Cups uh, before injuries ended her professional career early in 2004. Um, since then, many of us um, hear her voice on our televisions on an almost weekly basis. Uh, as a television on-course reporter uh, for PGA Tour events and, and elsewhere. Uh, she's worked for uh, Golf Channel and NBC Sports in the past, and she's currently a regular on the CBS Sports Golf Crew, uh, also doing work for ESPN and Sky Sports. Uh, Dottie joins us from her home in Saratoga Springs, New York, the place where she was uh, also born and raised. Uh, so Dottie, welcome to the Bag Drop. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And um, I hope we have an easy night for our, our tech team <laughs> and a lot of animated and good questions. And yeah, I think uh, to sum up my employment, I've, I've gone through most of the alphabet and I only missed Fox and now they're, and they're out of golf. So I think I'm okay. <laughs> well, we're here to talk about your book, uh, Letters to a Future Champion. Oh, thank you. Uh, my Time with Mr. Pulver, uh, which was published earlier this year and is available on your website, uh, dottypepper.net. Um, I know a lot of us here in New Club really enjoyed reading it. Um, you. So, you know, the, just a quick thing about the format tonight. I'm, I'll ask a, a couple of questions here for the first half of the hour uh, to get us going, and then we'll open it up um, for questions from those in attendance here on Zoom. Excellent. Great, great. Um, so, Dottie, uh, you know, what struck me throughout the book was the human relationship between a player and a coach. Um, and that's something that we haven't really seen in a lot of other golf books um, about instruction. Um, you know, it's so much more than wrist position or swing tempo and all those other things that we can read about and, you know, uh, every month in a, a big golf magazine. Um, your book just, it, it reads different on every page. Um, it's, it's more about how the game brings people together and, and, and even people from uh, different generations together um, and can provide life lessons more than just a, you know, a, a lesson about taking it back low and slow. So my first question is, um, tell us a bit about why you wanted to bring this book to life. Why was it important to you to, to do this? Well, first of all, I should have come to you to write the synopsis for the book because you just nailed it. And secondly, uh, why did I, I felt it was, it was a pretty, it was a very personal project for those who've, who've read it. Um, and now who are going to get to listen. I just finished session one, starting to do the audio book today. So we got through the first two chapters and my introduction and uh, some explanation of the, of the financing behind how all of this happened. So I, I I walked out of this, the recording studio today a little bit scrambled, but it, it was also such a good reset for me because I've been in kind of marketing mode about the book and not about reading the book again since it's come out. And certainly since the paperback came out uh, in, in early and into June, early July, why, I wanted to share this because we did have such a, a unique relationship. I was 14 years old when we really first started working together. Um, and him, him sort of sort of molding me from afar. And 15, when we first went to the practice range together as student and teacher in April of 1981, and it's not very often, you get a 15, 14, 15 year old and an 81 year old that 
connect and connect almost instantly through respect, through curiosity, through love of golf, love of all things golf, whether it be, like you say, um, the low and slow takeaway, but more than that, who are the players that he witnessed doing exactly that in competitions, in exhibitions? Uh, who are the, the chief writers in the game that would be in, important for me to learn a whole broad aspect of the game itself, not, not just being out there beating balls on a range. It was a, it was a really wide spectrum relationship and a, I had COVID time, but B it, it, I, I just felt it was time to put this out there. And it was never about, it was about the message. It wasn't about the money because this whole thing was self-funded and it was funded through going back to you in Chicago in 1993, it was a, a shootout at the Chicago Sun-Times Challenge. And I put the $5,000 I won on that Tuesday afternoon in a bank account. And sure enough, 38 years later, it's almost exactly the amount of money pre-tax it took to do this book and get it through its first printing. So I'm, I'm a firm believer in life that there are some things that are just meant to be, and this thing was meant to be. Well, you know, I, I also feel like your your book of of letters reads like a one big love letter to mm. to letters and, and and you know the somewhat forgotten art of, of of sitting down to to write a letter you know with a a clear and and quiet mind and and then mailing it and receiving it and and then cherishing letters you know it's something I think that you know um, has has gone missing a little bit in our in our culture with with. Uh, rapid text messages and, you know, and emails. And um, I, I particularly enjoyed seeing the actual letters reproduced in the book, you know, the facsimiles that, you know, great photo re reproductions of Mr. Pulver's typewritten letters often and, and your handwritten letters. Um, it really gives a, a tactile, a, a tangible side of the correspondence. And, and again, that, that human element between, you know, mentor and, and mentee, um, and it, it was touching to me to, to see that you, you kept his letters in a, in a binder that you underlined and highlighted them and, and studied them through your teenage and, and college years. It, it, it's clear just from the, the physical visual reproduction of the letters, how much those letters meant to you and how much that relationship meant to you, um, in your early years. It, it was, and. I still, I mean, I, I, I handle them very gently because they're almost on the old onion skin paper, most of his letters to me. If not on, you know, paper tends to deteriorate over time, especially with human oils on them. If, you're, if you've gone back and highlighted them or touched them. So I have that they're all in a three hole punch with the little punch holes, secure things around them. They're still in the original binder. They're in chronological order, but I have to, I had to be really careful because each of them had to be scanned at a certain DPI in order to get them to the designer. And the designer had to get, above all, the designer had to get the story, had to get the relationship, had to get the what the letters really meant. And there was one person that I was going to, and that was Martin Miller. And Martin's from Sacramento, um, runs Miller Brown, and his chief business, well, how, he, how most people see, especially on the West Coast, Martin Miller, it's through golf, beautiful golf scorecards that he writes, <laughs> designs, prints, and gets them to into um, our hands. But he's also a magnificent photographer um, at Cyprus, at Pebble, at Augusta National. And he worked with my husband on the original rules of golf for the honorable company. So I, he has a knack for understanding the game, understanding the people, the places, the relationships. And there really was only one person that could get this. And we had about an hour conversation back in early April of 2020. It was actually right around when the masters should have been. So he's trying to transition his, his office, his employees in a pretty much a hard lockdown in Northern California. I'm trying to go through all of the ideas of this book pretty much in a hard lockdown in upstate New York. And we, and it was like this flash of energy that went between the two. Like he got it, I knew he got it, and it was time to start getting him the actual letters and letting him figure out how to present this. Um, he 
even when we got to the cover, he found this photograph of me winning my first Dinah. I didn't know where it came from. I didn't, I don't, that, that's the one in the lower right-hand corner. And I said, Martin, where did you find that? He said, well, it was on the internet somewhere, but we got to figure out who, who owns it. I really would like to, to use it. I wasn't in love with the photo, but he was. I'm like, okay, I get it. The, the background photo came from George's oldest daughter. She's 91 now and had been digging through boxes and found it at McGregor Links. Oh, wow. A photo of her father in the workshop that's now underneath the clubhouse. So it was all extremely like people finding things that they thought would be helpful to the project. So I had to go to the LPGA and say, I have one really good connection left in the creative department there. And I said, Sandy Higgs, who, who do we find to know where this photo came from? I need to either pay for it or some, make a, some sort of an arrangement to be able to use it properly professional. Professionally, well, they don't have all that stuff from the early 90s in the office anymore. It's in a storage unit somewhere in Daytona Beach. And, you know, she went and went hammering through all of those boxes and she found it. And she found the guy who took the photo. She looked, it was basically an old Yellow Pages search for him in Portland, Oregon. The Yellow PGA had, had hired him to do the whole West Coast in 1992. His name was on a slide and she found him. And I, we made the connection and I said, how can I, I would like to use this and I explained the whole process. And I said, how, how can I purchase this from you? What are the limitations? And he said, I just want a copy of your book. Oh, wow. It was crazy. He said, I have the original, you signed it. Uh, you know, in, in a pile of things that had come my way through the LPGA, he said, I just would really like a copy of your book. I sent him to. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was just it was, it was sort of, it was, again, it got back to the people part of why this book was so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it takes a lot of people to come together to make such a beautiful book. And, you know, uh, with a little bit of a background in, in, in publishing myself, uh, you know, my first impression was that this was, this had to be a lot of work, you know, a lot of work for you um, as the writer and, and, you know, compiling all of the, um, all of the materials, but, but then to reproduce all of them in such a, a know a gorgeous edition um yeah. so it's a, it's a real testament to people coming together it is um and i think in the in the covid time to this day i've i've met with martin because i saw him at augusta at the covid masters in november and again in april uh we we text and he's got a puppy now we said you know, we send photos back and forth he's got a daughter that's gotten married family it just family's close to us but the editor and and the designer still have never met each other except over Zoom calls. I, welcome to COVID self-publishing. Yeah. But everybody got it. Right. 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 And it's, you know, it's the it's the content. It's it's having great content, you know, that makes that possible. Um you know, I wanted to uh, to to delve into the book and and um you know, talk about some of these um axioms or or these bits of advice that mm. Mr. Pulver gave you. Um, and, and, you know, a couple of that that struck me. Um, you, you wrote that Mr. Pulver um, once said uh, golf is only a game and that that was one of the axioms that you came back to most often. Um, how does that sentiment apply to someone, you know, at your age and at your your competitive level as a teenager? How does that sentiment of, of golf being only a game uh, apply to becoming a professional golfer when it seems like you know, an unrelenting competitiveness and a fierce desire to win are also required to do well. It's funny, uh, when we recorded chapter two today, that was in chapter two. And I, and I kind of, you, you, your mind is racing as you're, you're, you're speaking all of these things, but at the same time, I'm thinking to myself, darn, I actually bought into that for a while. <laughs> and sometimes I did well with it. And sometimes I was so bad at it that it becomes, uh, I think that the fight as a professional golfer, and I think a lot of people have been talking about this even recently, um, that your self-worth become is equated to what you score, how you finish in a tournament, or the, the run of golf you've been on lately. And just to really try to separate 
that I've prepared myself as well as I can to do well, but sometimes it just doesn't align. You, nobody deserves to do well. You just kind of prepare yourself to do well. And I think if you can somehow take a little bit of golf is only a game and keep that, that little mind, that little guy tripping in the back of your mind that you can somehow uh, make it, make good with it a little bit easier. But darn, the game's hard. And it's not very kind. And as we get older, it seems to get more difficult, even though the equipment seems to try to help that. It's just a hard game. And if you can realize that it's, it is a game, and for some it's their job, that somehow it can make it a little more easy to swallow. <laughs> it sounds like you're really trying to strike a balance between you know that, that necessary desire to win um, with also knowing that uh, a loss isn't the end of the world, you know, in golf, um, even the best golfers lose um, most of the time, almost all the time. Most of the time, um, yeah. <laughs> and and that's and that's you know and illustrated in in one of the articles that Mr. Pulver uh, mailed to you, sh shared with you, um, you know, but it also um, you know this this sentence. This might be the you know, my favorite sentence from the book, you talk about the magical ratio between grind and giggle that not only results in wins, but also an enjoyably balanced life. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you about, you know, that kind of balance too. You, you also say later on in the book, uh, give me the kid who has balance on and away from the golf course 10 out of 10 times over those early specializers who so often burn out too soon. Uh, you, you had a clear balance in your teen years. Uh, you know, uh, you, you had a, an obvious focus on, on school, on your studies, and then also skiing and working as a ski instructor. I'm wondering, you know, what advice would you give to, to young golfers and, and their parents maybe about, about this balance? If they're, if they're just golfers, I would say, put another ball in their hand, put another bat in their hand, put another something in their hand. Um, because I think there's a sports balance and there's also a seasonal balance. For me, it was pretty clear. I couldn't play golf all winter long. I had to, I didn't have to, I chose to do something else. Skiing was in my DNA. My family still owns a ski shop here in town that's in their 81st now year of being in business. It was what my grandfather did uh, after he opened an auto body shop coming back from World War II, he bought a ski shop. Just love skiing. It wasn't, I don't think he ever looked at it. It was going to be a primary income source. He loved skiing and he spread that passion around. So for me, there was balance. There was seasonal balance. There was, I mean, I have friends that I, that grew up in, you know, up, upstate New York, Western New York, Joey Sindelar, Mike Hulbert, Jeff Sluman. We all did other things during the winter. Slew was a great bowler. Um, Hubby worked as the Zamboni operator outside, you know, 10 minutes from home uh, growing up in Horseheads. You know, we had other things to do. And I think it really created a balance and it also created a yearning for when the season did come. So if, I, if I'm that parent with that gifted child, let's, let's do something else. Let's, even if it's more time, let's find, let's make it good time and play something else. Um, set different goals, be around different people that you have to build those relationships and work around those relationships. I just, I, I, if there was, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't really have time to play or the money really to do other, other than golf and skiing, but I was highly competitive in PE class. Don't let me get you wrong. <laughs> you know, I was going to play on the basketball team until I got called for traveling and diving after a ball. Like, whoa, wait a minute. I've got nothing left on my hands and knees when you're calling me for traveling. I'm done. <laughs> so uh, I, I think it's really, really important to have balance. And Mr. Pulver, if you go back to even the summer of 1981, which was the first summer we worked together, he, he started talking about balance really early. If you're feeling burned out, if you're not loving to get back other hit golf balls, if you're not loving to say, oh, let me play three or four more holes, then it's time to, to walk away, go to the pool, get on the bike, be a kid, do all of those other things. And I think that's, that's a really important part of the balance too. 
Yeah, you know, listening to yourself, your your mind and your body, and and seeing where your interest and your passion yeah. kind of wanes. You know, at some point you might be doing damage. You know, um, physically. You know, uh, you were talking about how he he said he he wanted you to put the band aids on before you practice. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> he always Which had a so subtle funny. way of yeah, he had a very subtle way of saying that was really stupid. <laughs> so from then on, I always had white white tape, the half inch tape that Johnson and Johnson tape that was in my golf bag, and it went on my fourth finger um, and and both of my thumbs. I, and I to this day have terrible uh, skin on my feet and on my and my hands. So that that was mandatory. But yeah, that was that was probably pretty smart. Put it on before you hit golf balls. <laughs> So, you know, your your book also demonstrates the importance of of feel in the game of golf and and also the importance of of words and and, and mantras, kinds of you know, verbal and written instruction um, you know, that goes along with with um, you know, with being a golf professional. In in this day and age, you know, with with players constantly reviewing video and, and track man numbers, uh, do you feel like uh, younger golfers are losing out on this more mental kind of instruction and mentorship that you receive? I, I think that that balance word is is where it comes back to because the technology is there, so we don't have to go through the barrel of golf clubs at the at the local wherever driving range and find one. Oh, that feels good, looks good. Let me give it a try. We we have the numbers now to back that up, but it still comes down to. Do I feel that club? Do I feel that grip? Do I feel that shaft when I most need it in the heat of competition? So I think there, I think he would have loved the balance plate sort of technology because he was definitely a, a teacher that taught from the bottom of your connection to the ground with your feet. Um, he would have loved slow motion sort of stuff. So he understood the timing of the transition because he was real big on, on take it back slow and low but don't be in any big hurry from the top i think he would have loved that sort of thing i don't think he would have loved the micro look at at everything because you just got it at the end of the day he believes you just had to get the job done and and i i still believe that you can have all the information and i i did that early as a player when i was with titles and they had all of these new clubs coming out i'd go to i'd go out to out to California, and I'd have all of those numbers on, all of those those mechanisms looking great. And under the gun, there's a difference when adrenaline hits, when the wind gust hits, when because it was in a perfect perfect trust of testing conditions out there at Oceanside. And my, all of a sudden, like, what's the stuff in my hands? I, I, it doesn't work under the gun. So I think he would have thought that it was good to have the information, but find the balance of what can be your best friend when the bell really rings. Right. And having a, a mantra is probably going to better serve you when you're really under the gun there in those high stress situations where, you know, you, you have to trust the equipment at that point. You have to trust the numbers and all of the work that you've put in. And then you have to just quiet the mind and, and go. Um you know, in, in New Club, um, I want to talk a little bit about match play here and your experience with it. Um, in New Club, we play a lot of casual match play. Just, you know, we go out on a Saturday morning and we just figure out our handicaps and, and go play a match. Um, in the book, uh, you write about the influence of another really important person to you, uh, Joanne Connor. Um, and, you know, your eventual love of match play. Um she was your team captain when you played in the Solheim Cup in 94, um, which the U.S. won decisively thanks to a 8-2 to two single session victory. Yeah, on the it, last was, day. It, was, it was a late rally. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was an anxious Saturday night. <laughs> well, her, her advice to you uh, either that, that, that night or the, the last morning was just go win the first hole. Um, why do you think that was such helpful advice? Well, I can tell you when she when she put that on us, it was Saturday night at dinner and Joanne loved to have uh, a clear, a vodka. <laughs> there wasn't much else in it except, except ice. And she always sat at the head of the table and you know, there, there was some tension in the room. You know, we'd lost in 92, never should have lost. I mean, we had this rock star team coming to Dalmahoy, Scotland and we got waxed. Um, 
And now here we are tied, tied, tied at five through two sessions at, uh, at the Greenbrier. And I forget who it was that asked her the question, but it was, Captain, do you have any advice for tomorrow? And she said, yeah, go in the first hole. <laughs> and everybody said, well, yeah, why not? Why don't we just go hammer it from the first hole? And, and she just got everybody thinking positively, thinking forward, but also really pretty clear. And, that, and it was just a relief that went through the room. And the mantra was two things. Because if you played that golf course at the Greenbrier, you know the 18th hole, you have to cross the road. You play a par three, 17, and then 18 is par five up the hill back up to the clubhouse complex. So there were two mantras that day. It was go in the first hole and don't cross the road. So get it done early. Get it done before you have to go to 18. I like both of those, you know, and it, there's a simplicity to to just trying to win the first hole because it mm -hmm. match play is hole to hole, right? Like, yeah. you, you know, just, just, it's the shot at hand. It's, it's, um, you know, it's the hole you're on and, and it's as simple as that. That was perfect. Um, you know, with your experience earlier this month covering the Solheim Cup at Inverness for Sky Sports, you know, I wanted to ask you, uh, how has the competition of the Solheim Cup changed from your six appearances, um, you know, around the 90s to, to today? How has the Solheim Cup changed? Well, it's, it's changed. Uh, the format has finally settled down. So it now is exactly the same as the Ryder Cup, where before... I don't, I don't know that, the, well, we've had daylight hours issues that sort of interrupted a couple and you had to play less sessions. Um, uh, first off, there were only eight players on each side. There just, I don't think there was a depth of talent and they couldn't put all of that together. Look, when, when the Solheim Cup was first announced, it was in June of 90 and it was going to be played in November. The last tournament that would cut off for the tournament for the Solheim Cup was in, I believe, mid-September and it was the Centel Classic in Tallahassee but points had already started to accrue so they only I think they had a limited budget they had a limited time they had a limited number of bodies on the ground that could make this happen so it was eight on each side and I remember being in that meeting and thinking oh wow I really want to do this and I wonder how many points I have and how hard I got to play what do I have to do from here to make sure I get on that team and I was not the only one, of course, thinking that way. Um, it, it's, so it's changed in format. It's turned, certainly changed in scope. But I think the thing that I noticed the most doing this last Solheim Cup now for Sky. So all my commentary went back just to the UK and Ireland. So I was supposed to be the American side. And I, I did as, I, as I've always done, thanks to Tommy Roy's influence at NBC. I did my first Ryder Cup under the word we and they never come out of your mouth. So you shoot it right up the middle. It's the United States or it's Europe. It's the Americans or the Europeans. It's nothing about we and they. And I noticed that it's no longer that the Americans can just try to stay close through the, the team aspects, through foursomes or four balls, and then know that they're so deep getting into singles that if they win the single session, they win it all. This was a really well-matched 24 women. And the Europeans were clearly over the eight weeks leading into the matches playing better golf and they continued to do that. But if you also look back to how they got off, got out of the box over the first three holes at Inverness, the Americans did not go win the first hole. <laughs> they, they didn't do that and they didn't close. They had so many matches go to the 18th hole and they didn't start and they didn't finish that. So they're starting from pushing from behind and so much energy spent that it just never finished. Sounds like they needed a pep talk from uh, Joanne Connor. Uh, uh, to me, again, it's, it was the two pep talks over my, my six Solheim cups that stuck with me the most. Well, Three, let's go back to the first one. Kathy Whitworth, because she had a team that, that you know, should have won basically left-handed. Um, she just said, remember that underdogs will always raise their play. You are going to have to play better than you think you're going to to get this job done. And sure enough, match number one, 
1990, they, she puts out Pat Bradley and Nancy Lopez, as Allison Nicholas called them. So Allison was playing against, against them with Laura Davies as a partner. Allison Nick labeled them God and God. That's who we're playing against today. And they beat them. So it was, you know, that's, if you don't need a wake up call, you just got it. So that was, that was the first one. Corner in 94 was just going the first hole. And then in 1996 with Judy Rankin at, um, at St. Pierre in Wales, we were, again, the Americans were trailing going into Sunday. Deep, deep team. Pat Bradley was playing terrible golf. Put her out first against Annika Sorenstam, thinking if she can just stay on the golf course, it's going to feed energy back to the team. But Judy's last words on Saturday night were, you all already know how to do this. You know how to win. You know how to play. Just go do it again. And they're like, yeah, we already know how to do this. And that's what I think we won. Of 12 points, I think we won 10 on Sunday. But what a comforting feeling, but also a go get it. I, yeah, I really like that. It, again, it's a, it, there's a simplicity to it, you yeah. know, that kind of sets you to say, this isn't that complicated. You know, it's not about statistics. Right. It's, it's really about going and, and just playing golf, and, you know, and, and playing it at a high level. And that, you know, the reason everyone is there um, is, is because they're, they're the best at it. So right. that you already know how to win. Exactly. Um, I just have two quick questions and then we'll open it up here to the group. Um, I, want, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your approach to, to playing golf today. Do you play often? And, you know, how does it kind of compare? Like, what what does the game give you these days compared to, you know, when you were, um, you know, a competitive teenager? I rarely play but it still gives me golf nightmares. And I knew leading into the Ryder Cup because I've been reading and watching so much golf and I'm fired up about the Ryder Cup. It's like a national holiday in our house. I had golf nightmares the last three days. What the heck? And they were always the same ones that started every season. And my typical one is that no matter where I get the ball on the tee box, I can't make a backswing. There's always a tree limb there that will not let me make a backswing. And the other one, now this one's really weird. I get the ball stuck in a filing cabinet and I can't get, what am I doing? I cannot get the ball out. Why a filing cabinet? It's happened every year before some big tournament. So it's the beginning of the season or like leading up to this Ryder cup because I'm so fired up to watch it because I don't have to work. Uh, I'm having these stupid golf dreams anymore. So my golf now is very limited. Um, It's make contact, move it forward. Don't three putt, get it out of the bunker in one swing. And, you know, nine and one is, is my deal. I love that. But there is part of this game that just gets in your soul and it gets in your brain and it just, it, you love it and it torments you all at the same time. I think a lot of us identify with that. You know, there's a number of us that were more competitive when we were younger, certainly not at, at, at the level that you were at. Um, but many of us, you know, go through different phases of, of our lives with golf sure. and, and, and realize that it's more about um, enjoyment, you know, a little bit of escape, a little bit of r- relaxation, and, and every now and then a little bit of competition uh, today. But, um, you know, it's, it's nice to see how you've been able to have golf transition with you, you know, as, as you've gone through different stages in life. I think that's something that that the game can can give all of us at, at different stages. Um, my last question here, you know, I was I was wondering, but when you play at practice, do you do you uh, do you hear Mr. Pulver's voice at all, or the, his words out there? Does it does it come back to you? Without question, and uh, I think the thing that he always reiterated was try to find the simplest manner to play the most difficult shots or get yourself through a difficult situation. Uh, so that you don't, and I talk about this a lot on the air because you don't ever want to compound an error. But we'll play a difficult game. You're going to hit bad shots, but don't compound the error. And he was really big about that. Um, kind of slowing things down and understanding what's going on. Get yourself out of trouble in one swing. And course management was really big, big for him. He talked about 
McGregor Links, the golf course I really grew up on, there was a, a, a kind of a, a mid bunker uh, that would catch a, catch a poor second going for the green in, in, in two if on the opening hole of a par five. But it was that awkward length 60 yard bunker shot. He was like, go get yourself in that bunker and learn how to play that shot because it's, it's one of those things you don't really think you'll have to have. But sure enough, find yourself in that situation and, and not be fearful of it and have something decent come of it. So I, I hear him, hear him all, all the time, um, just kind of boiling the game down, boiling the shots down. He was so good at that. That's great to hear, you know, and that's a, that's a gift, you know, that you can, that you can keep with you. Uh, and I know some of us have a, you know, a coach or a, um, family member, you know, some advice that we received many years ago that, that might, that might get into our heads, you know, at, yeah. at, at the right time. Um, well, that's enough for me. Um, let's open it up to questions from uh, the rest of us here uh, in the Zoom call. Um, who'd like to ask a, a question uh, for Dottie? Hey, Dottie. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. I want to jump in here with a sort of a current topic one. Um, with the athletes these days and how things are covered, uh, you know, whatever you put a tweet out and it, you know, creates a big uh, firestorm and all that kind of stuff. I was wondering what your take is on um, sort of being honest, because I think part of what you're getting at is sort of being honest to yourself. So I'll try and make it short, but like a weird thing, Max Oma somehow feels like a buddy because he has a podcast where he just talks about what's going on in his life. And then he says, I have to give up this podcast because, you know, it's it's too much. Or right. Brooks Kepka, you know, seems to be pretty honest. Uh, maybe he's chasing pit money. Maybe he's being honest. Who knows? But he seems to be straight and just saying, I don't like team competitions. But then he says that and it's like, oh, this guy doesn't care about us. So so what do you think in covering? Uh, and you don't have to talk about specific players because I know that's, you know, part of your work. But if you don't want to. But I just wonder what you take from the honesty versus you know, how this stuff's covered and maybe aggregated. I give me honest all day long. I, I can deal with that. <laughs> and and I can, I, there's a part of me about Brooks right now that says, I get it. I mean, the Ryder Cup is a different week. Solheim Cup is a different week. Players who are on a really regimented schedule, it's a hard, it's a difficult week to get through because it's really not your week. And you come into it as a really, you come into it as yourself. It's a, it's a one person and I'm the team and everybody is out here to surround me and help me. Well, there's 12 of you now, and there's a captain and there's assistant captains. And, and by the way, there's your country too. So it, it really is, it's a week that I think if you're going to give the week its whole chance to blossom, you got to kind of park the self thing. And if you want to get up early and go to the gym and get a good sweat in, fine. Um, but it really is the week about the team. And sometimes it takes being on that and in that atmosphere more than once or twice before you really get it. But give me Max Homa all day long. I just think the guy is so real. He's self-deprecating. He's honest. But here's a guy that had had the yips with the driver. Talk about a scary thing if you're a PCA Tour player. You got the yips with the driver. And he was, oh, hello, sweetheart. <laughs> um, just brutally honest. We've all gotten it. We've had that happen. So why is it so weird that we talk about it? Hey, I went to the Q school in 87 with the Shanks. Talk about being brutally honest. I had to write about that in a book again. It still scares me. And nobody wanted to hit golf balls to the right of me that week. I can promise you. Uh, I, I think there's, a again, that, that crazy word balance. But I think in Brooks's case, as he's around the, the Ryder Cup and gives it a chance to really to get into the Ryder Cup and all that it's that, um, I think it can do nothing but help him. And, and by the way, I think these two, Brooks and Bryson, they're going to be just fine, even if they do end up getting paired together. Thank you. Thanks for the question. I'll jump in with one. Uh, sure. First of all, Dottie, thank, thank you for, for joining Thanks, and Jenny. with us. Um, you mentioned something. Well, I'll first also add, I played the Greenbrier in August and the 18th hole has changed because of all the flooding they had a couple of years ago. Oh yeah. There's a bunch of redesigns. Right. So there's now there's two different golf courses and there was a one, the one that we played was, I think it's actually technically been abandoned. 
Uh, they were going to redesign, and I, I don't know whatever happened. So did you did you finish on a part five or a part three? The old white finished on a part three. On a part three. Played, played the Greenbrier course, which yeah. I think finished on a part five, but then they redesigned another one to be a short course. I think it was right, the one that really right, flooded right. out. Exactly. Um, uh, on 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 that topic, when you're talking about going out and winning that first hole, and you know playing in the match play a little bit as as the underdog, that that sometimes there's a there's a there's something to that. Do you think that that you know Poulter was interviewed recently? He made a comment about that secret sauce that the Europeans have had, and even though they've had that record for the last twelve years or so, that they're still considered the underdog every every time coming into this. Do you think that's part of it, or is there something else that the European side has seemed to have had that that for whatever reason in recent history has given them a leg up. I think they do believe that they're underdogs, and and part of that is that they're if you look at them on paper by world ranking they are totally underdogs, but they play on their own tour and they shoot great scores. They win golf tournaments. They just don't happen to do it on the PGA tour. All of them. Um, a lot of them play a lot of tour events here and are full PGA Tour members, but they also play a lot over there. And I, I just think there is there are two words you never hear. Maybe there's technically three. The Europeans say when they're playing in the team matches, I'm sorry. They just go get it. They don't care where their partner puts them. They don't care if the Americans have hold a shot. They're still in. They're expecting the Americans to win, and they always seem to have an answer. But one thing they don't ever say is, I'm sorry. I, 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 I think they've got, and I, and I do think they come out firing, um, whether no matter what the format is, whether it's foursomes to start or four balls, they are so ready to go. It's like they're, they're not just dipping their toes in the water. They're all in from swing one. And I think the Americans have come out a little bit tentative. Definitely saw it at the Solheim Cup, whether it was the format or just the heavy expectations of winning with virtually no European fans on site in Toledo. There was something that was hesitant about the American side. And you never see that from a European Ryder Cup side. Thank you. You're welcome. Hey Dottie, this is this is Philip out here in Chicago. Uh, as as everybody else said, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I'd love to just hear your thoughts on uh, the, the evolution of the Solheim Cup. It was so much fun to to watch this year, uh, and I mean, I could not have imagined a better uh, location uh, in. Um, Toledo, and uh, I'm really excited to see where they host the next one in in the states. Uh, but yeah, I just would love to hear your thoughts. And um, you know, I, I'm imagining just from from where you uh, uh, from when you played it um, is you know do you, do you have some some pride into where uh, that event has gone? Huge amount of pride, and and I think uh, I think back to 1990. And, you know, there were eight players, eight caddies, and Kathy Whitworth uh, on the American side, and eight players and eight caddies, and, and Mickey Walker on the, on the European side. And we all got there on Tuesday, and we realized Wednesday morning that the European tour caddies, the LET caddies, had uniforms, and we all went, oops, didn't think about that one. So it was Lopez, Betsy King, and myself were all on the ISOD staff. So we picked up the phone and made sure that they all had, had uniforms by the time we started on Friday morning. Uh, so that was that's first start. And to think where it's come to Toledo, where they set the all-time yes. attendance record at Inverness and to play a golf course of that quality. And really, I, I think, put that golf course back on the international map. Well, look, they had a 2019 uh, U.S. Boys Junior. This was this was rocking. And to have the golf course presented the way it was, to have the weather cooperate the way it was, and think about what had happened, and there still weren't any European fans there. It was that well-received. Um, corporately, I, Judd Silverman, who was the tournament director, was a very, very good friend of mine. And it could not have been better the way 
Toledo, the region supported it. And the opening, well, it's not the opening tee shot, it's the opening in the 10th tee shot. To have all of that built out the way it was, it was, it was more of a concert atmosphere than it was a, a traditional golf tournament. It was, uh, I think that's, as I told Judd, you've set a new bar. Everybody else is going to have to keep up with Toledo. And it, hats off to them. They did an amazing job. And to have all those matches go to the 18th hole, have it ultimately decided with the American rally late on, on Sunday by just a point. It was, it, it did everything from, from my perspective, except have a red, white, and blue flag on at the end of the week. It was really amazing. But that that's the stark difference between uh, 1990 not having uniforms for our caddies because the Europeans did. And then you see over 135,000 people roll through the gates in Toledo during, during a pandemic. Pretty remarkable. Thanks for that, Philip. Um, other questions? I'll let one fly. Go, Matt. Dottie, I'm a, a new father uh, of a 10-month-old, Eleonora. She, uh, oh, wow. I, I hope, is picking Congrats. up graphics. I dragged her out to the golf course, uh, was it last night? Two nights ago. Uh, she seems to be enjoying it. She can't stand yet, so I'm probably a little ahead of the game. Um, but don't be uh, that dad. <laughs> exactly. I, I, think, I think my question is around uh, the women's game for for junior golfers that that carries on through their life, and, I, and I'm not talking about you know building a champion. Uh, that's obviously something that happens with with other involvement and. But, but I'm talking about just the love of golf and seeing more women in the game. I think broadly, uh, we'd all love to see this. You know, I think it's 40% uh, female junior golfers now, which when I was playing junior golf, I think it was more like 20. So we've seen this continue to grow. Um, but, but keeping them lifelong golfers, I, I know uh, I'll go again personally. My wife really hasn't been able to play as much just from uh, she, she grew up playing a, a bit, but you know, motherhood and, and all these other challenges that kind of social and not make it really challenging to stay with the game. Uh, but I, I was curious from your standpoint, what, what you think would be the, the keys to seeing that longevity for, for women that are picking up all these junior golfers that are uh, picking up the game now. And, and how do we make sure that in 30 years, those women are still playing the game? Um, are there, are there initiatives that you've seen? I, I know one that I, I absolutely love is the uh, the mixed um, event, the mixed gender event in Sweden uh, with Henrik Sensen and, and Annika. I, I just think mm -hmm. that's, that's great to see them playing together and yeah. uh, that type of equality. I, I was wondering if there's other things that you think need to happen or, or that you enjoy seeing in the game that will make sure in 30 years um, those women that are playing now are, are still in the game. Well, I think that talking about that event in Sweden, there, there are talks going on to have a mixed team event come back to the PGA and LPGA tours, finding a date. Uh, there is support for it from the players, I think from both administrations, it's just finding the date and the sponsor. That's, that's a great start because I, I think there are opportunities in the schedule for something like that that would be beneficial. Look, there's, there's no more um, the PGA event at the end of the year, so that, that's gone. So it's when you, when you got the, the, the guys who won the major championship, so that week has has opened up some, so there, there is an opportunity, but I think continuing to have success for the women in the game is almost hand-to-hand -hand combat. Grab your friend, grab your neighbor, make it welcoming, take them with you, because that's how it's going to sustain itself over time. It's, it's pretty well known that even, even in junior girls golf, in high school golf, that there's a, the girls are less just forward about just going it and doing it on their own. But if they got a pal there to do it with, they're going to get in and they're going to stay in. So I think that's that's the foundation and you stay with it through through college. There are even college programs now that have it's really kind of an intramural aspect to golf that becomes more of a networking opportunity rather than you know being involved with the NCAA and going through all of that than actual a comp, a competitive team. It's more like club golf that they have in the UK that you go play matches against other other places that are you know a couple hours away, and but you maintain that network contact. But it's it's hand to hand. And come on, you know you you live down the hall. You're an athlete. Let's go hit some golf balls. Let's go to Top Golf. And oh, well, let's go play a short course. Let's you know. So that's the sort of stuff that is the evolution of trying to keep people stuck in this game. And I I just think you know I don't 
It's been a while since I've been in that boardroom at the PGA of America, but I would be crushed if one of the things that wasn't on their agenda was we have been the silver lining for so many people going through the whole COVID mess. We've had so many poor people get into the game at some level or another. How do we keep them there? And not only keep them there, but keep growing. And I, I just think it's hand to hand. Come on, let's go do this. Here's, here's the invite. You don't have to be any good at it. There's a place for you to really stink at golf and get hooked on it, and then we can move you forward. Thank you. Thank you. I think we have time for a couple more. If there's any other questions. I have one. This is Josh Bilkey. I don't know if you can hear me. We can. Uh, oh, good. <laughs> I'm in my car waiting for my kids. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I love when I turn on a show around one, the PGA, and I don't turn on often. It's worth for the big ones, but when I see your name on the course. And what I seem to have noticed, um, well, now that Johnny Miller's gone, well, your commentary is one of the best that I can see on the TV. I'm not just Thank trying you. to blow smoke. Um, but I feel like the times when you say the least is when you want to say the most, but you, you can't quite, you don't have the, I, you know what I'm trying to say here? It's not really a question. It's just your thoughts. Like there are situations that you want to say more that you don't, and you keep it really short. And so I'm just, can you just talk to me about what you're going through when you're out there and, well, some of the, the best advice I ever had starting into the commentary world that I now live in came from Judy Rankin, who is definitely the person I look up to and who broke glass and grass ceilings for, for what I do now and, and many other women in sports. But she, she, not, she didn't set the bar just for women. She set it for guys too. And, and, and part of her philosophy is to say the most you can in as few words as possible. And sometimes, yeah, I get, I get cut off, but I know I'm going to get cut off generally because I have a monitor that is with me and I can see that we're going to the next shot. <laughs> something else happens and we're bailing. We're going to get to something that's a lot more important than one I have to say anything about. And I think that's, especially with the, with the drones and the quality of camera work that are out there now, it's so important to let the story be told by pictures and you add to it. And if I'm out there just filling space, I haven't done my job and I've taken away from really what you need to, you need to be enjoying. Um, what I, everything I say should be additive to what you're seeing on the show or the whole complex of what the conversation is about what we're on the air with. Because it really is, when it's all done, it's, it's more of a, for me, it's more of a listening job than it is a speaking job because we're trying to be the glue that kind of sticks all of the stuff together, all the conversations that have begun early in the, in the show or even throughout the week. But it, it's also really important to just let the action happen. Try not to talk over the contact of the shot because people want to hear that whoosh. And sometimes I'm really guilty of that. And my husband will say, that was a really good show, but you talked over about five shots today. <laughs> Um, so you're always learning, always listening and trying to really lay out as much as you can so that you get a better, a better viewing experience. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks. Well, sounds like that might be it. Uh, Dottie, that was so great. Thanks so much for joining Thank us you. tonight. Thank you. Um, and thanks to everyone who, you know, who are available for the call and are listening at home. Uh, for those of you who haven't picked up Dottie's book yet, uh, please go to www.dottiepepper.net. Um, a portion of the proceeds go to charity. Uh, it's a great book. It makes for a great gift for the, uh, the golfer in your life as well. Uh, so Dottie, thanks so much once again. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed you guys. Um, preparation was fantastic. I pride myself on my preparation before I go on the air. You guys smoked it. <laughs> this was really... It made it made for a fun conversation, and I, I, that's what it always should be. Just we're just a bunch of golf nerds, turf nerds talking about golf. It's what we love. Yeah, well, it's a real pleasure, and uh, when you have great material, it's it's an easy easy study. So, uh, well, thank you, thank you, everyone, and have a great night. Thanks. Good night, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. If you are not a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter or Instagram, we're at New Club Golf. 
This episode was produced by Mark Caldwell with research assistance by Jim Sitar. The Bag Drop is supported by members of New Club Golf Society and our official partners.